The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 16. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. In my enthusiasm for the theatrical significance of putting Banquo on stage in London in the early years of the 17th century, several episodes ago, I may have made it sound like King James was genuinely a descendant of Banquo. Certainly, James himself felt like he was, and perception is nine-tenths of the truth in this case, but I should counter that Banquo and his son Fleance have a rather more dubious historical existence. In fact, some have argued that they are fictional characters, invented by the Scottish philosopher and historian Hector Boyce in the 1520s. What is dramatically interesting is that Jacobean audiences, including the king himself, believed that Banquo was one of the king's ancestors, regardless of that tricky issue of genuine historical fact. I mention all of this as we arrive at the first scene of Act Two, and Banquo enters with his aforementioned son, Fleance. It's later the same evening, and a very good time to hear the response of someone other than Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth to the night's events. Banquo asks, how goes the night, boy? He's asking Fleance what time it might be. The son replies, The moon is down. I have not heard the clock. So the moon has set, but that's all he can offer. He didn't hear any clock or indication of what time it might actually be. Banquo replies, And she goes down at twelve. So the moon sets at midnight. It is some time after that. Rather obviously, in one of the more thankless lines Shakespeare ever gave to a young actor, Fleance confirms, I take it tis later, sir. It is indeed after midnight. In this quiet little scene between father and son, in the shady darkness of the night, they let their guard down a little. Banquo hands his sword to his son, and he chats some. He says, Hold, take my sword. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. Take thee that, too. A heavy summons lies like lead upon me, and yet I would not sleep. Merciful powers, restrain in me the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. Banquo is very good at setting up images that will then vibrate in our minds in contrast with others that we'll encounter later. He doesn't just say that it's dark and that the stars aren't visible tonight. He says there's husbandry, or thrifty housekeeping, happening in heaven. Their candles are all out, not being burned wastefully at this hour of the night. This and many more images will be picked up later. Banquo seems to be removing his armour or a cloak or something, as he continues by saying, Take thee that too. Fleance already has the sword. Banquo reveals that he feels very tired. A heavy summons lies like lead upon him, but he does not want to fall asleep. He prays to the merciful powers to give him a break from the wicked thoughts that come to him while he's sleeping. Restrain in me, he begs, the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. He's quite the foil to Macbeth. The latter is giving in to his evil thoughts, while Banquo doesn't even want to dream bad things. He quite literally would not dream of it. We've been told just how dark it is, helped by the stage directions telling us that Fleance entered with a torch. 
So now the poor young fella is likely carrying a torch, his father's sword, and a cloak. Now Macbeth enters, and since it is this dark, Banquo can't see who it is. Probably wisely, he gets the sword back from his son and asks that most basic Shakespearean question, saying, Give me my sword. Who's there? Macbeth answers, A friend. So there's no crisis. Banquo amicably wonders why Macbeth is still up, after an evening that has gone so well. What, sir, not yet at rest? The king's abed. He hath been in unusual pleasure, and sent forth great largesse to your offices. This diamond he greets your wife withal, by the name of most kind hostess, and shut up in measureless content. Banquo reminds Macbeth that Duncan has gone to bed. He's been in unusual pleasure, he's had a great time, and has been particularly generous with his gifts and generosity to Macbeth's staff. He has sent forth great largesse to Macbeth's offices. This already contrasts with that husbandry in heaven. But in the next line, it seems as though Banquo hands over a diamond, a gift from Duncan to Lady Macbeth, for all her care that evening. This diamond he greets your wife withal, by the name of most kind hostess. This is not a play about a diamond, goodness knows, but it's somehow curious that Duncan gives Banquo a gift for the hostess, and then Banquo gives it to Macbeth. Wouldn't it be more likely that Duncan might have made a speech at dinner thanking her for her pains and give it to her then? Perhaps so, but of course that banquet hasn't been on stage. What makes this interesting are the associations that an audience might have had with diamonds. Nowadays, we think of them and we think of love and eternity, which is why so often a diamond figures in an engagement ring. But in the Middle Ages and after, they were considered a symbol of great purity and power, and they were thought to ward off everything from minor ailments to witchcraft. So there's some irony to Duncan passing a powerful stone like a diamond to Lady Macbeth, leaving himself perhaps unprotected, and indeed arming his would-be murderer with it. For now, Banquo says, the king is shut up in measureless content. He has withdrawn for the night, and is in his guest room, and is very happy with himself. Macbeth and his wife have played it all beautifully, and the visit has been a great success. Macbeth now humbly responds, returning to that complimentary language we've heard before. He says, being unprepared, our will became the servant to defect, which else should free have wrought. He's saying that they had barely any notice of the visit, and so they were unprepared, and they could only do their best with what they had. They would really have loved to have done so much more. Banquo reassures him that really, it has been good. All's well. Here might be a good moment for Fleance to exit, since what follows is a rather dangerous chat, and neither Macbeth nor Banquo would want anyone to overhear it. Then again, perhaps father and son are close, and Fleance may already know about what Banquo and Macbeth heard out on the heath. Banquo says, I dreamt last night of the three weird sisters. To you they have showed some truth. It's a reasonable thing to bring up. We know Macbeth can't stop thinking about them, and Banquo just told us that he's afraid to sleep because of the ideas that come to him in the night. And here he seems to confirm what these ideas are. He dreamt of the weird sisters. 
And indeed, he rightly says that what they said to Macbeth has partly come true. I dreamt last night of the weird sisters. To you, they have showed some truth. Macbeth lies blatantly. He says, I think not of them. You can always tell how lively or engaged a theatre audience is when they hear this line. We all want to groan or scoff when he so clearly lies to his friend and then casually continues. Yet, when we can entreat an hour to serve, we would spend it in some words upon that business, if you would grant the time. He's asking Banquo, when he has an hour to spare, if they can have a little chat about that business if Banquo would be so kind as to grant the time, like either of them can think about anything else. It's interesting here that Macbeth uses we, which could just be that we, you and I, should have a little chat, but already he's starting to sound like he's using the royal we. Banquo replies politely, at your kindest leisure. Whenever is good for you, he's saying, and Macbeth doubles down in this fancy formal language. If you shall cleave to my consent when tis, it shall make honour for you. If you would be so kind as to meet when the time is right for me, that would do you great credit. Macbeth doesn't set an actual time for the chat, but it will be his choice when it does happen. And Banquo replies, So I lose none in seeking to augment it, but still keep my bosom franchised and allegiance clear. I shall be counselled. Banquo is saying he will lose no honour in augmenting the time chosen, but that he will keep his heart franchised to the king and his allegiance to the king clear. In other words, he won't be plotting any means for his descendants to become kings in the meantime. But he will be counselled. Macbeth can let him know when it will be a good time to talk. There's a very strange tension to this. These two are close friends and war-wounded brothers in battle. They've hacked their way across Scotland in defence of their king, and now they're speaking this arch, sort of fussy language, even as all they're doing is arranging a time to have a chat. Perhaps this archness could be heightened by the presence of Fleance holding the torch between them, but certainly these two men don't need to talk like this. At all. But they have the measure of each other, and we can now see that both of them are consumed with thoughts inspired by the witch's prophecy. Clearly neither of them is going to be sleeping very much tonight. But nevertheless, Macbeth wishes Banquo a good rest. He says, good repose the while. And Banquo, again a little more awkward than should be necessary between such friends, replies, thanks, sir, the like to you. And at this point, Banquo exits. If Fleance is still there, he definitely exits with his father. Now Macbeth is left alone, on the brink of one of the most famous soliloquies in the play. But it's such a powerful little scene, so integral to the shaping of this play, that we will save it for its own episode next week. I'm on the hunt for more information about diamonds in Shakespeare and elsewhere, and whatever I find will be in the show notes that accompany this episode. You know well by now that these are all available at thehamletpodcast.com, along with the text and notes for every episode we've done. Thank you for joining me, and I'll speak to you next time.